Welcome to the Outlaw Radio Show. My name is Zach Adams, and I pastor a church located just outside of Athens, Georgia. The name of the church is Calvary 316. If you're local, check us out. Our Sunday service is at 1030. If you're not local but looking for a church to watch online, again, 1030 Sunday mornings, you can watch us two different platforms. Uh, YouTube, our YouTube channel is Outlaw, not Outlaw Radio, Calvary316.live or Facebook.com slash Calvary316. Uh, I am blessed to be the husband of one. I'm Miss Jessica Adams, father of three, Quincy Theodore and Mabel. And I am joined in studio, uh, as always, by a dear brother, friend, a man that really needs no introduction, uh, the maestro of this madness, Mr. Creighton Vaughn. Creighton, uh, welcome to the Outlaw Radio Show. Hello. Depending on how the madness goes, I might not keep that. When we get started, the ma- I'm not the maestro of the pre-show madness. You were real eloquent with that opening. Eloquency is my God-given gift. It's your God-given gift. Also join in studio, uh, and we're just doing this quick, are four of my, my brothers, four of my dear friends. We've got Mr. Nicholas Monty, Deal That's Daddy me. Derek, mm. Spice Daddy, and Kyle Parkin. Elephant Titus. Fellas, welcome to the Outlaw Radio Show. We are, we are, off, we are starting off right. We are Woo. off and running uh, this evening for sure. If you're new to the Outlaw Radio Show, uh, the show is interactive. Uh, we it is a podcast. We podcast Apple, Google, Spotify. So the audio is podcasted uh, tomorrow on Thursday. Uh, but we live stream the recording of the show. We live stream on <clears throat> outlawradio.live uh, as well as facebook.com slash the radio outlaw. On both of the, the threads, the video feeds, there is a comment section. So if at any point during the episode you'd like to leave a comment, question, or let's even say submit a topic for a future episode, uh, you can do so by just kind of typing in the comment section. Creighton, you monitor that, right? I sure do. I'm not on the camera. Hold on. Yes, I do. I am, uh, I'm in the comment section for both YouTube and Facebook. Um, also, if you have a question that you would like us to talk about as the show's topic, I would love to get those. Because, we can work it all in. Yeah. And I, you know, am lazy. So if you can give me things to make my job easier, that'd be great. My email address is CreightonVaughn at gmail.com. So, CreightonVaughn at gmail.com. How do you spell it for those that might not know how to spell Creighton? Well, it's a hard spelling. It's C-R-E-I-G-H-T-O-N. V-A-U-G-H-N at Gmail, which you should be able to spell. So future topic, topics, or if you're a single lady, that is Creighton's <laughs> email address. Um, you know, before we get to, so the show is interactive. It's also not scripted. I have no idea what we're talking about today. Creighton, the producer, kind of brings the topic. And then we have fun, uh, really, the, the six of us making that into a Bible study. Uh, so the show's interactive, it's unscripted, it's conversation between friends. I do want to kind of go off script, so to speak, just a little bit. Creighton, we'll get to your topic in a moment. Um, so I am currently teaching through the Gospel of Matthew um, at Calvary 316, uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, uh, working our way uh, through uh, just really a wonderful presentation of Jesus uh, as the King, uh, not just the King of the Jews, but the King of us all, uh, the King of the universe. And, uh, and today, uh, fellas, I was prepping uh, for Sunday, and um, one of the guys that I turned to, that I listened to, uh, one of my favorite Bible teachers, <clears throat> is David Guzik. He's a friend of our show. He's been on the show a few times. Um, uh, David's a wonderful Bible commentator, 
commentator, wonderful Bible teacher. Um, EnduringWord.com is his website. I highly recommend it. Um, he's got a full Bible commentary uh, for free, uh, audio, uh, the sermon notes, uh, really good stuff, especially just a great place to start if you're studying Scripture on your own and wanting to take your, your Bible knowledge to the next, the next level. Uh, again, EnduringWord.com, great place to go. So I was listening to David. I'm in chapter 9 of, of Matthew's Gospel, and he made this comment. Uh, I mean, it, it might have been he might have taken two, three minutes or so uh, to kind of, kind of unpack an, an idea. So it wasn't a very uh, central uh, point to, to the passage, uh, but it really got me thinking. It kind of challenged. I've never heard this before. Um, I've been uh, a student of Scripture for years, went to Bible college. Uh, my dad pastors at Calvary Chapel, uh, so I've gone through the Bible with him. I've, just, I've never heard. It's a rare, rare thing to run across something that you've just never heard before. And, uh, and it's kind of got me thinking about it. I don't really know um, if I have an opinion yet, if I've formed an opinion. And so I kind of wanted to open tonight's show by just throwing out, kind of sharing this, this, again, a thought that David presented. And just, again, I've got no direction here. Um, I, I don't even think I really have a, a solid opinion on this particular thought. I wanted to get you guys' initial uh, feedback just about what David shared. So let me explain. You guys cool with this for a moment? Yeah. Uh, Let's do it. And, it. and if you don't have anything, that's fine. Again, I'm still chewing on this. This is way out of left field. So in this section of Matthew's gospel, so really the first four chapters, uh, Matthew is kind of establishing um, the, back, the background, you know, the genealogy of Jesus. He's establishing for us uh, the birth of Christ, uh, Matthew, again, presenting Jesus as the king. Um, it shouldn't be a surprise that he then presents for us the story of the wise men uh, coming from the east, presenting these gifts uh, to this newborn king of the Jews, the interactions that the wise men have with, <clears throat> with Herod the Great. Kind of explains to us a bit of the story of Jesus then uh, going to Egypt uh, for a period of time before finally settling um, in Nazareth. Uh, presents for us the ministry of John the Baptist, kind of his ministry reaching this crescendo with, uh, with Jesus um, there being baptized by John in the Jordan uh, River. Uh, so the first four chapters really presenting a lot of the backstory, introducing us to the, the main characters, to the important players. Um, and then what, what Matthew does for us is, is uh, chapters 5, 6, and 7, um, he gives this um, incredible uh, record um, of what we call traditionally the Sermon on the Mount, a sermon that Jesus gives um, on, on a mount there outside of the Sea of Galilee. More in likely, um, kind of the cliff notes um, of that particular sermon, uh, which establishes a general outline uh, for a series of messages that Jesus would give um, as he's traveling this circuit around the Galilee, uh, preaching and teaching in the synagogues. Anyway, Chapter 7 ends the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 8, 9, um, give for us um, some of Jesus' practical work. Um, we go from Jesus in his teaching ministry to Jesus in the practical ministry of ministering to people um, through miraculous signs and wonders. Again, validating his word. So within the context of kind of the general outline um, of Matthew's gospel, Matthew not always writing chron chronologically, uh, writing in a lot of sense thematically, although there is no doubt a chronology to what he's writing, uh, David makes this point. He kind of, uh, in chapter 9, kind of states the obvious, something, again, I've never really thought of. When you're 
looking at the ministry, the life of Jesus, and specifically the ministry of Jesus, <clears throat> and maybe we're kind of numb to it, um, just because we're, we become very familiar, kind of a, a paralysis from our familiarity. Um, but there's so much of Jesus's ministry that centralizes on his, his, his miracles, his miraculous power. Again, you read through whether it's Matthew's gospel, uh, Luke, Mark, John, it doesn't really matter. Um, you're struck by um, just Jesus's ability to heal people of all types of ailments, uh, whether it be blindness or lameness, a paralysis, raising people from the dead, you, you, you name it, a woman with a, an unclean blood flow for 12 years. Um, Jesus was performing these incredible miracles, demonstrating the supernatural power, understand, understandably to validate his word. Um, but the point that David makes, it, which I never really thought of, is like, like you get to these accounts where Jesus stays up all night in Capernaum, and they bring to him all of the sick, and he stays up all night healing people. And you just kind of get this, this you know, Jesus' three-year ministry. He's healing people of a lot of sicknesses. And I've never thought of it this way. But you can't help but take a step back and think, man, there were a lot of sick people in Israel at the time. You know, for Jesus' ministry to really center on healing people of their sicknesses, infirmities, or for that matter, casting uh, demons out of individuals, it's like, what a really sickly place to be. Like, there's a lot of sick people, apparently, in the Galilee, in Judea, in the area. And this is the point that David made. Again, something I've never really thought of. Really don't know if I agree or disagree. But he, he goes back to Exodus 15. Um, I'm not going to read the specific passage, but I'll just paraphrase. You know, God has given instructions uh, to this group of people. Uh, that he's liberated out of Egyptian captivity, liberating, uh, going to lead them through the wilderness, going to take them back to the land of promise, a land that he had promised to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, the patriarchy. <clears throat> and there's a passage in Exodus 15 where in the midst of giving instruction, making promises, he says, if you listen to me, if you obey my commandments, um, if you abide in this covenant... And again, this is a little bit before the law is fully given. Uh, there's a lot of things that come, but there's this general promise that's, that's relayed. If you, if you listen to me, if you're my people, you obey me, um, if we're good, I will keep from you the plagues that I just poured out on Egypt, um, the sicknesses, the diseases. Um, and there's this, there's this interconnectedness, seemingly, um, of their health, and their obedience on a national scale, such as if, if, if all is well, you're obeying me, you're living in the covenant, uh, you're, you're obeying my statutes, I will keep from you these sicknesses, these illnesses, some of the, the various things uh, that afflict the nations around you. And in fact, that'll kind of be a testimony. Your health will end up being a testimony. Now, again, this is the old covenant. There are ideas that we can carry forth health and wealth, seeker-friendly gospel, uh, prosperity gospel that, that I disagree with. And that's not the point that David was making, but he extrapolates this out by saying, or at least explaining, that when Jesus the king arrives and the whole land is ravaged by all kinds of ailments, that it was a sign, an indicator, 
of how far they had fallen from their covenant. And thus it was God amongst the men, amongst the people, uh, demonstrating forgiveness and healing, whatnot, um, and that there was, this, there, there was a connection made between the two. Again, I don't know exactly how I feel about this idea, but I've never heard it before. And just kind of, again, going to throw it to you guys. Any, Kyle, I'll start with you. Any general thoughts um, yeah. a- about that? Yeah. Um, fascinating. Um, I would say that right off the bat, having not gone back and actually read it or anything. And again, I'm, I'm hitting you guys pretty, blind. I'm pretty well bought into it. Um, the first thing that popped in my head with that was, you know, technically that is the Jews are still under the, the old covenant, the law and all that kind of stuff. And there's countless times that sickness and, and bad health and, and all that kind of stuff was used through the law to depict sin and why it made you unclean and the things you had to go through to get right. Um, so why couldn't God use the picture the other way at Jesus' coming to show that all of these people are completely completely lost and, and the sickness is a result of that? Now, again, I think you can take the idea a little far. Uh, and here's an example. One of the passages that comes to my mind. And, man, I, I forget the, the, the specifics of it. But there's a sick man, and the conclusion is that his sickness was on account of his sin or the sin of his parents or whatnot. And Jesus makes it clear, right? No, this has, this has nothing to do with his sin. It has nothing to do with the sin of his parents because he had been afflicted, um, you know, in utero. Um, I, it was a par- one of the paralyzed men um, or one of the men with palsy. But he says this man's sickness was so that God might be glorified and again, we now know through the healing. So Jesus kind of kind of has a, the counter-argument to that of like, well, no, this was not because of sin. But in its totality, could it have been um, just the general sicknesses of the people, an indicator of, of, you know, stepping aside from their covenant? Justin, you have any, any thought? Just, and again, I, I'm just throwing this out. I know you guys are, are totally cold with this. Um, haven't had a chance to put much thought into it. But... Uh. Sickness in general, I, I don't know how you can quantify if there was an unusual amount of sickness for the area for that time. Um, but, I mean, you see it any time a society moves away from God. I mean, how, how, far, how far along was it between uh, Noah and Adam? Like, actually, walk, people that were actually walking in the garden with God to the point where God's wiping out. Like, we do it, know that, sin, that, that sickness can be. A judgment. Right. Sickness Leprosy be, yeah, is a I great think, example of that. I think sickness is a judgment, but then you also have injuries and sicknesses that are a result of sin in general, like, uh, you know, sexually transmitted diseases, stuff like this, that are, are it's not necessarily, I don't want to call it a judgment, I, but I guess it is. Well, but, you can, you um, can yeah. even say, like, in a very macro, like, broad sense, that all sickness can be directly tied to a degree, to sin. Right. Because sickness, etc., was never part of God's original plan for humanity. Right. And Um, whether that be your sin or somebody else's that that you're connected to, um, and and I I don't know how you can quantify if there's an unusual amount of sickness in that time, but I I think it is a good indicator of God's people moving away from 
his word and his commandments during that time because there, there's a, I think there's a natural correlation between increases in those and moving away from God. I'll give you an example of how that can maybe be taken the wrong direction. And this is, you know, one of the problems with health and wealth is, um, you know, well, health is the indicator of God's blessing, AKA getting sick is the indicator of God's displeasure. Um, we reject that, you know, that that's more of that. That sounds more like karma or karmic justice than it does the grace and providence of God. Well, I think when you talk about it on an individual le- level, yes, but on societal level, the, could be different. Yeah, it could be different as the society moves away from God. I think you will see more sicknesses, more, more evil in general, more injuries and things as a result of those. Which those I think things. is the point that David Guzik was making. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but looking at looking at all these individual stories maybe from the more macro explanation of why are there so many sick people in Israel, right. you know, come the first century. Um, that being said, the healthcare system stunk. There, there really wasn't one. Um, Nick, Derek, you guys have any, any thoughts before we hand things over to Creighton? Yeah, the concept of sickness being a physical representation of sin is very interesting, whether it's individually or societally. It's very interesting. So why'd you get COVID, Zach? <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding. But that, no, it is very interesting. Like, and, you know, it's hard to really say, like, no, they, because everybody was sick, they were in direct violation of the law at the time. They moved further away from God. So there, that's why there was so much sickness. It is interesting. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that either. Yeah. Nick, what about you? Uh, the only thing I have is from what you said from the beginning, how there's just different accounts of all these sick people and everything. One thing that strikes in my head is why, why there's so many accounts is because it's easy to relate to that kind of stuff nowadays for us. Mm-hmm. When we get, you know, when we fall short or with sickness and everyone nowadays, you see coronavirus, you see everything else happening. You can have faith that Jesus healed them. He can still heal you. So you can pull it back to that one, you know, yeah, Why sure. there are so many accounts is there needs to be for us to have a basis of our faith and what we believe in. And, and again, it does demonstrate in a very practical, relatable way mm-hmm. the power of Jesus because these type of sick, there are blind people today. There yeah. are paralyzed people today. Like it, the power of Jesus being demonstrated through these miraculous works. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I don't think it's wise to go around either and see if like, oh, if somebody's blind, like, well, what are you doing wrong? What did your parents do wrong? What's going on here? It was very interesting. Creighton, uh, let me give you an an opportunity to kind of weigh in on, again, I kind of unscripted through a topic at you here. (laughs) Yeah, I know. This is my job. But um, (laughs) I think it's interesting. uh, You brought up the the paralytic man. The the, uh, disciples asked Jesus whose fault it is that he has this problem. And Jesus says that it's the that it's for the glory of God and not for any one sin or any one person's exactly. sin. Um, I think that that idea still bodes very well with the idea that the, that the increase or the abnormally large number of sick people would be, you know, prior to Jesus coming, both as a, they're this sick because they're this bad, but also they're this sick because God is sending a physician and it is for the glory of God that the physician is going to heal. Interesting thought, yeah. So the reason that he's sick is so that Jesus can heal this man. Yeah. 
the reason that there are so many people there are so there can be so many people for Jesus to heal. And thus demonstrate. And thus demonstrate the glory of God. I like that. I like yeah. that. Okay, well, hey, listen, I appreciate that. Again, I had no really, like, solid direction for it. I just, something I've been chewing on all day and thought, well, what the heck? Let me get you guys' thought on it. So, Creighton, drop the topic for today's episode. We got, like, 30, 35 minutes. All right, cool. So, what, what um, do you have for us tonight? So, it's interesting that we started talking about the Old Covenant because my question for today is um, how, like, how exactly does Judaism work under the New Covenant? Because I've grown up, you know, I've grown up in the church. There is a certain number of things that fall into my Christian ease. Just things that I've learned over years. Things that I've, you know, just more or less have always known because I've learned it incrementally over 30 years. Like the idea that we are, as Christians, under the new covenant. The old covenant was um, what the Jews are under currently, the law. And there have been many covenants between all of that, like the Mosaic Covenant, the Abrahamic Covenant, the Adamic Covenant. There are all these covenants. Um, What's interesting to me is that the New Covenant, as far as I can tell, is the only covenant in the Bible where there are still people following the one before it. Like when the Abrahamic Covenant came down, no one was still trying to approach God under the rules that Adam had. Or Noah, vice versa. Exactly. Yes. Now we have us under the new covenant, and we we say, hey, this is the new way to approach God. This is how he has, he has given us Jesus. We approach God through Jesus. The Jews are still under the old covenant, attempting to approach God under a covenant that he has, I don't want to say uh, terminated. Super, super, or, superseded. Superseded is a very good word. Thank you, Kyle. That he's superseded. Maybe so how a do, good word. We'll get to okay. that. <laughs> so how do we how do how do we as Christians approach that idea? And um, or Jews. <laughs> and then how do Jews approach that idea? Probably more relevant um, to the Jews. Well, yes, yes, I do think it is. So that's the topic. Uh, you know, it only deals with millions and millions of people's eternal life. So nothing big. <laughs> nothing big. Nothing crazy. <laughs> the, the stakes aren't very. Aren't very large with this one. No. So I will, again, there's a lot of different ways. It's a nebulous concept. There's a lot of different ways that we could approach the idea. A lot of different ways we could unpack the idea. Just, again, stream of consciousness. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's start with what I think makes the topic confusing. And there's two components to it. One, I think we have a bit of a misconception of covenants um, from a biblical standpoint. And and two, I think um, there has been a... Um, a movement within Christianity that compounds the problem um, in the sense that it makes, it makes an, an easy answer unnecessarily confusing. So there is, um, and uh, you can take this back to um, the Puritans, I think would be, would be a great place to start. I think you start to see this, this theology develop within the Puritan writers um, uh, today, very, there's several very popular uh, Bible teachers from Mark Driscoll to John Piper um, that, that see themselves as coming out of the more Puritan thread. Uh, the reformers is, is kind of <clears throat> some of the direction you would go. And, and they hold to what's called a replacement theology. 
And replacement theology was kind of birthed um, as a solution to a problem when it came to eschatology um, or the study of, of future events, prophecy, end times. And, and the big problem that people had, and again, uh, we go back to the 1800s, um, some of the brightest thinkers of the time regarding uh, the, the Christian faith, the, the, the challenge was, okay, you turn to the book of Revelation, or you look at uh, the Olivet Discourse given by Jesus in, in Matthew chapter 24, uh, or you go back to some of the, the unfulfilled prophecies of Daniel, whether it be uh, the 70 weeks prophecy in chapter 9, or even some of the later prophecies that, that Daniel has um, of, of the end times. One of the challenges, and, and we'll hone in more specifically on the book of Revelation, the, the, the problem that people had is um, what, what, what to make of um, the absence um, of the church in end times prophecy. Um, so you had, again, in the book of Revelation, uh, really after Jesus' seven letters to the church, in chapters 2 and 3, beginning with chapter 4, um, through, the, through really the rest of the book, you have the mention of Israel a lot. Um, Daniel, a lot of, you know, is, is Israel-centric prophecies that had not been fulfilled. Uh, Jesus is mentioning of, of Israel and in, in end times prophecy. And so the, the challenge, again, if you're a, a, a Christian thinker of the 1800s, when there was a wonderful, glorious return to, to Bible exposition, um, I, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Again, the Puritans, there was the love for Scripture, return to Scripture, uh, the reading, the study of Scripture, uh, the exhortation of Scripture, the expounding of Scripture from the pulpit within churches and the church culture, church life. But the challenge was, was like, okay, well, there is an Israel. Like, Israel doesn't exist. Yes, there are, there are still pockets of of, of Jews living in communities across Europe. That's a, that's a truth. But <clears throat> Israel hasn't been around since 70 AD. That's a long time. You know, Israel hasn't existed as a, as a, in a national identity or a national form um, for thousand, thousands of years. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. <clears throat> so what do you do? <clears throat> Excuse me. And so what kind of developed was, again, what we now refer to as replacement theology, which was the idea that, well, um, the church replaced Israel. Um, it replaced Israel. And so when you're reading about Israel um, or, or you're reading about God's people within the context of future events, um, that, that it's not the Jewish people, that the Jewish people got replaced um, by what we would call the church, that, yes, Israel... The Jewish ethnicity, they were the people of God, but in their rejection of Jesus, um, their covenant came to an end. It ceased. It got replaced with the church. And thus, God doesn't have um, any, any future plan with Israel or the Jewish people um, that, that that ended. Um, you, you would probably hear a, another phrase if you study the topic aside from replacement theology, dispensationalism. Mm -hmm. The idea that there have been dispensations of God's agreements with humanity. Um, and that, you know, when one dispensation um, comes to an end, it gets superseded, replaced by another dispensation. Um, therefore, the old covenant 
um, gets superseded by this new covenant. Israel gets replaced by the church, the Jew with the Gentile, which, which then factors into this, this idea. Well, like to, to kind of answer your question, well, it's easy. Uh, the old covenant is over. God's previous promises to Israel um, uh, are, are no longer relevant to this particular ethnic group of people, and that those promises have now been bestowed. They've been removed from Israel because of their rejection of Jesus. They've now been given to a new group of people. So no longer are the descendants of Abraham, you know, these promises of a, of a, of a, of a land, of a kingdom, um, of a people group, of a king, that this is all spiritual and it's applicable to the church. Um, and, and thus you, you run into, again, very popular theologians today. Again, one of them, most notably Mark Driscoll, um, who is not looking for the rapture of the church, He's looking for the second coming of Jesus to establish a kingdom on earth. Um, he doesn't view the rapture as being a literal event. Um, and he doesn't believe that God has any future dealings with Israel. That, that all of the promises God gave um, have now been bestowed, handed over, bequeathed. Um, you know, we are, we are heirs of the promise in that sense. The Gentiles. The church. The church age. You'll hear that phrase quite a bit. And again, that leads to some confusion because again, I have a problem with that because it's like, well, well, what about God's promises? Like are God's promises, um, is God, is God an Indian giver in that sense? Does God make promises? And then, and then does he then revoke those promises, replace those promises, even, uh, to even superseding those promises or are certain promises when God gives them, they're, they're etched in stone. Is it, is it a hardcore dispensationalism that one thing ends, gives way to another thing, that God changes the terms? Um, again, I completely disagree with that. I, I have a, a big problem with that. And, and therefore, again, the problem that the, dispensational had, the dispensationalist had were those with replacement theology was just give time. Because what happens in, in you know, 48? Israel out of nowhere becomes a people group. Uh, again, you can you can read through the biblical narrative of future events, mentioning Israel, and it's like, well, wait a second, we have an Israel. Like, maybe God is not through with Israel. So now, okay, working backwards, how do we deal with these covenants? And again, I don't like the idea of classifying something as the old covenant versus the new covenant. Now we use those phrases uh, to make it a. a differentiation between the two which I, I don't I don't disagree with and, and in fact I have used the vernacular for its purposes that being said referring to the old covenant as though the covenant is no longer applicable uh, discounts the idea of a covenant because the covenant is a binding agreement you go back to the the Adamic covenant still very very relevant today uh, what is the Adamic covenant man mess things up, God would provide a savior, right? I mean, that, you know, Genesis three, that, I mean, that's the Adamic covenant. That's what I kind of thought about. Like God gave Adam specific instructions and in what he was to do. And then because of what happened now, all right, well, here's these new instructions yeah. that we got to go off. Of. But the Adamic covenant is still very much in its general sense, applicable. Um, the Noahic covenant, um, I won't destroy the earth, uh, with a flood. 
I'll just do it with fire next time. Mm-hmm. Um, is that is is that covenant agreement with mankind? Is that still very applicable? I would hope so. I mean, yes, from a very, you know, the Adamic just because God made a new covenant with Noah doesn't supersede or negate the previous covenant, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you get to the Abrahamic covenant in the famous passage where, you know, where the animals are cut in two and it is the presence of God that goes through the cov- that goes through the animals. Abraham was not allowed to. Abraham's faith was in a savior. Again, very similar to the, the Noahic covenant, very similar to the Adamic covenant and uh, Noahic Adamic, the Abrahamic just, narrows the vision that the savior same savior man needs a savior would come through the, the lineage of abraham right and then you get to the the uh davidic covenant does the davidic covenant negate the abrahamic covenant the noahic covenant the the the, the covenant? no it doesn't in fact it just kind of of all of these different tribes of all of the different people groups um it just hones it down to the lineage, the family of, of David for this savior to be, to be given. Um, when we talk about the old covenant, um, again, all of these different covenants kind of are under the umbrella. It's a very broad term. But again, you get into the, the, the essence of, of the old covenant. And people will say, well, the old covenant was about a temple. You know, God chose a people. He put the temple in the midst of the people. And he told the world to come. If you want to encounter God, you come to this temple. And here's a very specific set of protocols by which you were to approach God at this physical location in the midst of this very particular group of people amongst the world population. And then the book of Leviticus goes into all the nitty-gritty to it. Uh, Exodus gives you, Deuteronomy has the, the recapping of it, etc. The various sacrifices that had to be given... Uh, the procedures uh, that were that were called to be in place of this people group. God called out one of the 12 tribes, the Levites. You will be my people. You'll run the show here. There's a protocol to it. A nation, a nation of priests will be illustrated by a people of priests, a family of priests. And, and we kind of look at that in its overarching concept of, well, that's the old covenant. And then you have the new covenant where instead of a temple, God chooses the hearts of men in which to indwell his presence. Instead of a physical place, God indwells the hearts of men. Instead of calling uh, the nations of the world to come to a physical place to encounter God, God filling the hearts of people sends those people into the world so that humanity might encounter God through his representatives. Um, Does God still have a very... particular way he has to be approached yes through guess what a sacrifice in fact if you really go back and you look at leviticus i would recommend a great series called the precedent of grace (laughs) i happen to teach through the book of leviticus (laughs) because if you look at the old covenant is the old covenant outdated no is the old covenant not relevant not at all is the old covenant a picture of the new covenant absolutely in fact, there's no part of the New Covenant that exists apart from the precedent established within the Old Covenant. When we have this conversation about the Jews, the Old Covenant, and the New Covenant, again, going back to our, I think what complicates the issue is one, replacement theology. Two, is an, 
an inaccurate understanding of the very idea of covenants and, and the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. People will say, well, the old covenant is gone. Um, the old covenant has been set aside. The old covenant has been replaced by the new covenant, to which I would say be very careful how you, how you phrase it. Jesus didn't say that he came to do away with the old covenant, did he? What did Jesus say in regards to Moses and the prophets? He didn't come to abolish or to circumvent or to supersede. And to make it come true. He came to make it come true. He came to, quote, fulfill. Why? Because all of these precedents that we have within the, all these other covenants, um, the concepts established by them, the precedents established by them, the direction of the very ideas, they all pointed to whom? Jesus, who was the fulfillment of them. When we look at the nation of Israel today, and this will also kind of, I think, kind of get to your question. So, so what with the Jews? The reason that Judaism is no longer, will, will not save a soul is not because of the concepts established in Judaism. It's what those concepts, it's what, what, what they pointed to, whom they pointed to, and what, what they intended to be fulfilled by. Again, you know, you, you can say, and you, you run into Christians, they're like, well, I need to obey um, the, the, the feasts. Well, that's a misconception of, 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 of the feasts. Because what were the feasts, what did they, what did they point to? God called out a people, had them obey these feasts. For what reason? Because their righteousness was found in obeying feasts? No, their righteousness would be discovered and who fulfilled the feasts. They were all object lessons that pointed to Jesus and his future work. The Sabbath. Well, we, we need to keep the Sabbath day holy. Again, this would be the Seventh-day Adventists or Jews. We need to obey the Sabbath. Well, that's a mis misunderstanding of the Sabbath. Because again, the Sabbath was not established by the law. The Sabbath was established in the garden. It was established in creation that God rested on the seventh day. It was, it was life as it was intended to be. It was life in harmony with God. The seventh day is fulfilled in the ultimate work of Jesus by which we now have rest. I don't have to earn God's favor. It's been given to me. I get to rest in that reality. So, you know, you know Jews that obey Judaism... The problem is that they don't understand Judaism. And I don't say that to try to be some hoity-toity Gentile telling them what they should or shouldn't believe. I'm just telling you from the Old Testament understanding of what all these things pointed to. They pointed to Jesus and that he would fulfill a particular work. And so when we're talking about these things, like still, like what saves the Jewish people? Well, from a prophetic standpoint, it's they end up following an antichrist and they realize that they've been deceived. And then who do, like, how are the Jewish people today saved? Through the Old Covenant? No, not because the Old Covenant doesn't work, but because everything the Old Covenant was about pointed to Jesus. Ultimately, the Jewish people are saved at the three and a half year mark of the tribulational period when they recognize the error of their way and accept Jesus as what? As their Savior in the fulfillment of of the Adamic covenant, of the Noahic covenant, of the Abrahamic covenant, of the Davidic covenant, the old covenant. We call it the old covenant because we realize it's been fulfilled by Jesus and thus we have entered into the, 
kind of this like what it was all designed to produce you know Christ indwelling and enthroned in our hearts fellas you have any any questions any thoughts Creighton did that and again I, I know for the sake of time it's it's I kind of like pulled the ripcord and just went for it but <laughs> did that did that get to the essence of your question or is there a follow up or fellas you have anything you want to add kind of to throw um, into it so that did you, you, you hit the nail on the head on the question. Um, because yeah, I, I think you're right. I am thinking of the covenants wrong. Um, my question though, still, so we spoke about, you spoke about how the covenants aren't necessarily out, right? Like they're not, they're not voided by the following covenant. They've been fulfilled. So does that mean that once, because we're told in Revelation that the Jews will at some point get a temple back together, they'll start doing their sacrifices again. Um, and because they are then looking for a future savior in these sacrifices, they're looking for a future savior who has already come, though Jesus will still be a future savior at that point. Is there no salvation in Judaism even at that point once they get the sacrifices going again um, and they are quote unquote doing right prior to being deceived by the Antichrist and prior to then turning to Jesus? If those covenants aren't null and void, okay, let me give is you, there salvation there? Let, 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 me, let me come at that from a very bizarre angle. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I love bizarre angles. Yeah. Uh, let me come at that from a, from a very, very odd, odd place. Um, did the disciples of John go to hell if they didn't accept Jesus as their savior? John the Baptist? John the Baptist. The, the answer is yes. Yeah. They, they do. In fact, um, and I bring this up because, again, I'm in Matthew 9. Interesting, the disciples of John come to Jesus... And they say, hey, uh, let's talk about fasting for a moment because the Pharisees fast and we fast, uh, but, you're, but, but you guys don't fast. What's the deal with that? And Jesus, hearing this, comes and he, he, he answers really the second part of the question. Uh, the two parts of the question was, why do we fast and why do you not fast? And it's funny, I, listening to Joe Foch, he made the comment. He said, you know, to the first question, if you guys don't understand why you're fasting, why should I, why should I go on the record? Um, secondly, to the second part, you know, and, and he goes into this, like, when you have the bridegroom, there's no need for mourning. Hmm. Mourning comes when, when the, the bridegroom's absent, you know. He makes this, this point. And, and the reality was is that and again, you could talk about the Pharisees in a different way. That's a different topic. But regarding the disciples of John, they fasted. Their, the entire ministry of John was what? It was repentance of sin in preparation for whom? The Messiah. Now, some of the disciples of John got it because John was like, when he saw Jesus, there's the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. You know, there he is. This is the one I'm preparing the way for. And some of the disciples of John left all and followed Jesus. Um, Andrew and Philip as two examples of that. 
but some of the disciples of John didn't. And, and they're still, they're still like, we're, we're fasting. They're fasting being this expression of repentance and preparation for the Messiah. But Jesus is like, that's not relevant any longer. Why? Because the Messiah is here. Like, why are you, why are you doing things to prepare yourself for the person that's already arrived? That doesn't make any sense. And then you actually fast forward to the book of Acts. And um, um, I think it's in Ephesus where Aquila and Priscilla go to Ephesus and they find this Jew, um, a very eloquent man named Apollos, who's preaching. What? He's preaching the baptism of John, which was still a major thing. Not re- and then what do they do? They have to pull him aside and say, hey, guess what? Uh, that's great and all, but uh, let me tell you about Jesus because this is who John was pointing to. Um, what you are preaching is not, I mean, it, it, I guess it's relevant, but it's very incomplete. So, again, you kind of see where I'm going with this? Yeah, incomplete is a good word. So you get to, you get to the Jews. So I was at the Temple Institute years ago, <clears throat> which is in, Justin, you've been there. Have you been there? Uh, the old city of Jerusalem. Not on camera. Um, sorry. Justin was nodding. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've, I've been there a few times. Explain what the Temple Institute is for for those that are listening. So, uh, basically, for a long, for a long time, the Temple Institute has been established uh, with donations and and from Jews and Christians, uh, basically for the future establishment of a new temple. So they've already got all the instruments uh, re done in the proper way you can see the golden menorah uh, they yeah, have on display they they've been trying to track down the the, the correct animals to sacrifice the uh, genetic mutations of the the red heifer which correct. you need to dedicate a temple right. uh there's been rumors that they've tracked down the correct like lineages of the the high priests and stuff like that i mean there's there's so they are they are they are the orthodox jews that are prepping for the scenario that we find in the book of revelation where Again, we don't know when, we don't know how, but at some point, again, going off of prophecy, there will be the establishment of another temple there in Jerusalem. Basically, when you go there, they they tell you at the end of the tour thing, they said they, as soon as they get permission to build it, they're ready to start right away. They've got the funding and all the materials. Everything's ready to roll. They just, they, there's not political will, and, um, and there's obviously the, the risk of a world war. Um, a lot of things would have to happen to make it to make it feasible to make it, to, which is a whole other topic for another day. The point is that you have this dynamic where they will they will do this. Now, I was at the Temple Institute, and the lady's going through this whole thing. She's giving this whole spiel, and and I asked her, and again, she's not a Christian. This is an Orthodox Jew, and I said, so without a temple, without the altar. You, you don't, without the priests, without the high priest, without everything we find mandated, um, an offering cannot be made for the people on the Day of Atonement. So the atonement of sin is an impossibility because you don't have a temple. And, and not only that, but a sacrifice on the Day of Atonement hasn't happened since 70 AD. So it's not like you know, we're going to give grace for a, a week or, you know, oh, well, we missed a year. No, no, no. We're talking about a very long time. This has not happened. 
And so I said, so, so what is the basis? Like, what basis do you have that God has forgiven your sin? And I quote, we have to believe. I said, so, so you're basing your entire salvation on, on faith and not works? Like that, that, sounds, that sounds like a lot of the new covenant to me. <laughs> sounds familiar. Sounds familiar. <laughs> of which, you know, that, again, God is hard in the hearts, and, and that goes in one ear and out the other, and they don't understand that. Doesn't, they establish these things. I should say there's a reason. I think there's a reason that the temple was originally destroyed, and there hasn't been a temple, hasn't been offering, hadn't been sacrifice, that these things have not taken place or occurred since 70 A.D., um, I, I think that they're prophetically God's providence. There's a reason that this stuff hasn't happened because Jesus came, fulfilled it. There's the things that these, the things that these practices pointed to, the reality that they pointed to was fulfilled in Jesus and there's no longer a reason for them. Why does it happen again? I think it happens again to stir within the people a spiritual acumen that was probably lost from the Holocaust Again, another topic for another day, but also as part of the grand deceit of the Antichrist, because I think all of these things end up being tied into their accepting of a savior and that being that being a false savior. I, I think a, a neat way to, to look at this, because I've had a unique the unique pleasure of living in Israel for a little while and then being able to interact with like the people there, but then also messianic jews that that live there that's yes. it's a small community and i and define I'm friend, for those that might not know define a messianic jew uh, a completed jew i guess is what i've heard it described as there it's a jew that's accepted jesus as, as the messiah yes uh, and that that's who the jews currently are looking for they're always looking for the messiah the savior and and the messianic jews are the ones that believe jesus fulfilled that and, and uh it's a very u- cool perspective that me as a gentile you know, and then hearing their perspectives of Jesus is is it's the same, but it's different at the same time because he helped he helped complete them. So some of my messianic friends are, they they called themselves completed Jews, and I I, thought, I like that and, term, and those so. and they often and what I, I appreciate about that particular movement, <clears throat> so they do celebrate the 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 feasts and they do adhere to the Sabbath day, but they do it not not in a, a law sense. They're not doing it to earn salvation. They're doing it as a reflection or a celebration of the fulfillment of those things being Jesus. It's kind of like we don't have to celebrate the 4th of July, but why do we celebrate the 4th of July? Because we understand what it commemorates, and thus we're, we're recognizing that, we're celebrating that, which is why I don't have any problems when Christians want to celebrate some of the feasts. As long as you understand you're not required to celebrate any of them, they don't earn you points in heaven. But I, I, love, celeb- bacon, I love bacon too much to, right, to, right, exactly. to go kosher. <laughs> Um, but that's similar again. Does that answer your question though, Craig? Yeah, uh, that does. And it, it, you say that you don't have a problem with people celebrating the feast. It made me think about your dad doing the Passover Seder every couple of years. He did it this past year. Yeah. Yeah. And I really enjoyed that as a kid. Um, and yeah, that did. I really enjoyed this conversation because this are, this falls into a section of my brain that is, I've learned this before. And like, I was vaguely aware of the details but I couldn't have put it into words to actually understand the reasoning behind what I thought I know. You know, it's interesting. Um, about, I enjoyed this a good. A you good know, it's bit. interesting about the Passover Seder 
is the fact that um, <clears throat> generally speaking, 99% of the Seder dinner was established years later in the Babylonian captivity by rabbinic tradition. Um, really? None of it's, none of it's, you find any of it in the Bible? I guess not. Um, now, what's interesting is that, is that all of these traditions were established, you know, the various things that they would eat and how they would eat them and they would do this and they would do that. The various cups, um, without realizing it, it, Jesus still fulfilled all of it. Right. Um, which is ironic. Um, but it's one of the reasons that at Calvary 316 we don't do a Seder dinner because none of it's biblical. Um, none of it's mandated in Scripture. There's the, the, there is the eating of the, the bitters, um, and there's the lamb. So we can get together and kill a lamb, which maybe we should do. Um, that would so be fun. Lamb we, should, roast. we should eat. Uh, I, I'll never forget a few years ago. I didn't even think about it. But we, did, uh, we were going to do a Good Friday service, and it was like, hey, let's do a potluck after. And, and we were talking about what we should do for potluck. And it was like, let's do a Cuban pig roast. Didn't think much about it. But then I was talking to my dad, and he was like, you guys sacrificed a pig on Good Friday. <laughs> like, There's something sacrilegious about sacrificing a pig. Um, and I was like, well, we didn't have a statue to Zeus or anything. So, um, uh, Derek, Nick, Kyle, you guys have anything uh, pertaining to the covenants in this kind of second part of, of tonight's episode? No, um, I think that was a cool point, too. Like you said, we can participate in those things, but it is not required by anything. And the Messianic Jews being completed in the way that they operate, that's kind of cool. I didn't really know that. I'll give you an example that just came to mind. So, and again, I <clears throat> I haven't popped the hood. I haven't looked under the hood at all uh, with the rest of you fellas. But my, my guess, just going out on a limb, is that you're all circumcised, um, which is the sign <laughs> of the Abrahamic covenant. Um, none of you were probably circumcised um, as a an outward demonstration of your of your parents' inward faith in the promise of a savior coming through the line of Abraham. But from a Western standpoint, circumcision it ends up being a thing that we do, um, but we do it for other reasons. Do you have to be circumcised uh, to be a Christian? No. Two, why? Two because circumcision um, was fulfilled in the work of Jesus. Um, in our hearts and not through a physical act of the flesh. Um, hmm. So, again, if you're out there thinking, well, duh, do I have to get circumcised to follow Jesus? You don't. Um, that should be an encouragement, I think. Uh, <laughs> Nick, you got any thoughts? Kyle? I got, I got a thought. Go ahead, um, just Nick's over there like, hey, I got, I ain't got nothing. <laughs> not, not, not right now. In the heart of Creighton's question, it's not a one-to-one example, but I think a good way to think about the covenants would be if you were to go into a contract with someone and say, let's sign this contract. I'm going to pay you to build this house. As you go and you're building things and you make decisions and you pick out different, you know, colors, appliances, floor plans, you can add to that covenant. Now that addition still is a fulfillment of the original contract that you've made. And you're just getting more detailed on what it is. And when you finally get to the end and you've got the, here's the fulfillment of this original contract, Yes, you can try to read the past versions to get to get to the answer, but I mean we've got the we've got the filled final detail of what the the house is built, what the contract is to look like. Right. Yeah. I would I would I would add, and I, th- I think this follows right into what you're saying. Is like, okay, hey Nick, uh, Monty Construction, you guys build me a house. Yes, we will. Well, we just had a covenant. Mm-hmm. 
Um, now, have we gotten to any particulars of that covenant? No, but Nick Monty Construction is going to uh, build me a house. And then, like, we get a little f- closer to it, and it's like, well, uh, how much money? I want you to build me a house for half a million dollars. Sounds great. I'm building you a house. Now we've honed in. It's half a million dollars. Um, hey, here's kind of a breakdown for the, the specs. Square footage. We're going to build a house this big, and it's going to be a ranch. And we're going to have an allotment of this amount of money for the flooring. Well, we get into the pro and we agree on it. The clarification of the particulars of the covenant. But when we get to the flooring part, it's like, okay, well, you guys have $20,000 set aside for the flooring. So we're going to have to operate within that budget. But now what kind of flooring do you want for the $20,000? Well, we want some carpet here. We want some tile here. We want marble, you know, out front. Again, we're just honing in. We're not changing the covenant. We're not doing anything to supersede previous agreements. It's not as though you come back and you're like, well, hey, what we're going to be doing now for flooring means that the $500,000 is no longer relevant. No, no, no. Everything operates. It's all consistent. We're just adding clarity to it. Um, the problem is, is that, you know, the Jews are still stuck one step before the fulfillment of it all. Um, so they don't understand the signature how it how it's sealed how it's fulfilled how it's accomplished um, nick you got anything last chance going once going twice no i'm good all right Derek, mm-hmm. we good i'm good charlie hey good question creighton well thank you i thought so i i very much enjoyed it and i enjoyed asking all right all guys right. thank you for being with me tonight I know it's a little hot in here, isn't it? Yeah, it's a little bit. It's a, it's a little hot. It is. If you don't live in Georgia, it is scorching out, and everybody's air conditioning is working overtime to stay up with it. Um, again, guys, thank you so much for being with me tonight. Appreciate it. You have been listening to the Outlaw Radio Show, uh, so thank you for being with me. Hopefully, you've been watching. Uh, if you haven't, you're listening. Our podcast, Apple, Google, Spotify. If you're listening to the podcast, check out the live stream, Wednesday nights, 8 p.m., Little programming note: We will not be, uh, we will not be having the Outlaw Radio Show next week. I'm out of town, uh, going to take a little bit of a break, spend some time with my wife. But we will be back the week after, and then probably take the Fourth of July week off as well. So again, summertime, our schedule is a, a little funky. But check us out Wednesday, uh, 8 p.m. Uh, check out outlawradio.org uh, for all the relevant information. Once again, my name is Zach Adams. I'm so glad you joined us tonight. God bless you and your family.